I'm excited today because we get to start, uh, in, a, in a way, a new series, but uh, if you've been with us, you also know it's an old series because we're doing an experiment this year where we are working our way through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, uh, but we're doing it in chunks. So we did a module in the fall where we did five weeks, and uh, today I want to do a little bit of a review of that for us to catch us up and remind us where we've been. And if you uh, missed that, we want to encourage you, like we did with the Live Your Wise series, um, you can go back and you can listen to those uh, online. You can uh, check out our website or you can go to our podcast. Uh, and, and maybe you want to go back and re-listen to them even if you were here because there's a lot of stuff in those first five weeks that in the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes kind of sets up the perspective and the worldview of the teacher, which is what Ecclesiastes means. Uh, uh, Greek is Ecclesiastes. The Latin we learned was Kohelet. And uh, in English, it's the teacher. It's the, the person who gathers the assembly. It's the speaker uh, to God's people. And so as we went through those first three weeks, we learned about uh, some of the challenges uh, to our perspective. And so I want to review that today, but I also want to remind you uh, that in the Live Your Wise series, we had uh, two particular invitations. Uh, one you heard about from Jeff this morning, that our annual meeting is coming up on March 6th, and, and we feel like this is an all-hands-on-deck annual meeting. Uh, there's so many things going on in the life of our church and explorations for our future that, that we really think, unless there's you know, some critical reason why you can't be here on that Sunday morning, please mark your calendars, sign up to come. We're going to provide a brunch and we're going to provide childcare so everybody can participate. But because of that, we need you to sign up so we know who's coming to plan for the food and all of that. But then, of course, also on February 22nd, which is the fourth Tuesday of this month, uh, I'm going to invite anyone who wants to to begin joining me here at the church from 6 to 8 o'clock in the evening. And we'll do every fourth Tuesday through June uh, again, child care and food will be provided to make it easy so you can just come and show up. Uh, so we'll also need you to register. But we'll be walking through our mission and vision as a church. And it's going to be less informational and it's going to be more conversational. We want to expand the conversation because we each have a part to play in discerning what the Spirit is saying and where God is leading us. And so we want to have an opportunity uh, to expand the conversation together, to do some equipping and training in where we're moving forward in our discipleship as a church, and then ultimately to share God's stories and to pray for one another uh, so that God will continue to inspire us and to call us and to empower us to be His people, His hands and feet in this place. So in that spirit, I want to invite you to just pray with me one more time, and we'll jump into Chasing the Wind, round two. Holy God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You do not remain silent, but you speak your word to us through scriptures. You speak your word to our hearts through your spirit, and you speak to us through our conversations with one another as your people. And so we ask this morning, God, or whenever we are listening to this message online, that you would speak your word to each of us, that word that we need to hear is a word from you. God, lift our eyes out of the circumstances of our lives in this world and give us a new vision and a new hope for finding meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment in the way that you had intended when you created us. And God, we will praise you and give you thanks through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Chasing the Wind is a, a, a build as a study in the futility and the fulfillment of life. 
And as we kind of continue this experiment, I want to remind you that we began the series by asking a set of questions. And I think the questions are still relevant for us today as we come to church this morning, as we go about our lives in the midst of a pandemic, and as we ask what the new normal is going to be for the future of our lives and our families and our church and our society. The first question we asked was this, do you ever wish that your life was better, different, more than it is? Or, or another question would be, do you struggle to find satisfaction and contentment in your daily grind that you live? Are you always feeling like there's more to do, more to get, more to achieve, more to pursue in order to finally arrive at that destination that you think you need to get to, to finally be happy and to finally be at rest and to finally find satisfaction and contentment in your life? And then we suggested that it might just be possible as we look through the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes that there's a fatal flaw in your thinking that is causing you and me to continue to feel discontent and not at rest and unable to find the happiness that we know God has promised us. There's a, a glitch in the system that continues to undermine our highest hopes and our best laid plans, that, that often leaves us feeling weary and worn out and disappointed by our circumstances and disappointed by other people again and again and again. Does that describe your experience of life in this world? I know it does mine. And we spent five weeks working through the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes, where, where today we, we want to remember that uh, we began by being challenged by the teacher to, to see if it's not true that if we lift our eyes from our own circumstances and we begin to look at the world around us and to pay attention to the reality of the life that we live in this world, isn't it true that we are surrounded by people in life who are living for all that this world has to offer? When in the end, none of it ever truly satisfies and in the end, what we discover is it's all just empty promises. In the context of the Old Testament, as I said, it's most likely that, that the teacher, the Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, was to be the, the speaker to God's people. And in verse 1, it says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so the book begins by the author introducing us to the teacher as a son of David and as a king in Jerusalem. And we talked about how if any person might expect to be able to gain from their labor and to profit from their life in this world, in Israel at the time, it would have been the king, right? And particularly, it would have been King Solomon, who was famed for both his wisdom and his wealth. If getting ahead in the game of life is the goal, he is to all appearances the one voted most likely to succeed. And so scholars suggest that it seems most likely that the speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes is taking on the persona of the king of Israel named Solomon so that we can use the lens of his life to reflect on the reality of our lives as if we were Solomon as well. You see, Solomon is the perfect example, if you know his story, of a man who knew God but lost sight of him in his life. His eyes got fixed on this side of eternity, on life lived, as Ecclesiastes calls it, under the sun. 
Solomon was the king of Israel at the height of its power, and God granted him wisdom beyond anything that any man had known before. But through his example, we also learn that there is no one so foolish in life as the one who has gained wisdom and yet fails to live by it. And so we began our search for answers along with the book of Ecclesiastes by asking the question, what is the purpose of life anyway? Why are we here? Why are you here? What is God's plan for you? Why why do you even exist? And in verse 2, Kohelet gives us his answer. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. (laughs) What? Is that really the answer? Is that what the Bible says? The purpose of life is meaningless? Does that mean there is no purpose? There's no value, there's no meat. What is he talking about? The Hebrew word that NIV translates as meaningless is the word hebel. And we talked about in the fall how this word hebel is more accurately used to describe something that is a breath or a breeze or a wind. Literally, it could say everything is but a breath. And so the emphasis is on the passing nature of our human existence in this world. Life is fleeting. It's but a mere breath. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And the meaning and value of life is elusive in such a short lifespan in the arc of history in the midst of God's creation and in the universe that he's made. And therefore, it resists any attempt at intellectual or physical manipulation or control. We can't manage our lives in the way that we want to. And so we're left feeling like ultimately it's all just useless. And we suggested that maybe a better word than than meaningless is futile. It's just futility. There's, there's no ability to gain the life that we want to create it for ourselves. And so we're left feeling frustrated and disappointed and wondering, why isn't it working? And where is God? And if God were a good God, and if God loved me, wouldn't it all be easy? And wouldn't it all work out in my favor? If something is futile, it means it's incapable of producing any useful result. It's pointless. Thus, given the fleeting and uncontrollable nature of life in this world, it's, it's but a breath. The question the teacher asks in verse 3 then is, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do we gain from all of the time and effort and energy that we put in to trying to manufacture a life that's going to produce satisfaction and joy and happiness? What is the profit that we expect from all of that energy that we put into living? What do you get when life is all over? When you come to the end of your life and you look back at all the the hours and the minutes and the days and the weeks and the years that you spent toiling after happiness and hope and profit, what do do you get to keep at the end? What do you take with you? (laughs) Where can you find genuine fulfillment on that journey? The question is difficult for us to answer, Ecclesiastes tells us, because ultimately the very nature of the universe in which we live, of God's creation, resists our human attempts to manipulate and to control it for our own ends. 
That's why he says in verse 13 and 14, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless. All of them are futility, a chasing after the wind. And what we begin to see as we go through these first three chapters of Ecclesiastes, that becomes more and more clear as he proceeds in his argument, is that Kohelet, the teacher, is suggesting for our consideration that the main obstacle to finding happiness and contentment and to living well in life in this world is that as human beings, we consistently refuse to accept our own mortality and the finite limitations that we are creatures and we are not gods. Or more simply put, we fail to recognize that we are not God. You are not the God of your life. What God has created and what God has established cannot be altered or manipulated or changed for our own benefit or our own gain. And his first point is that then when we pursue life in this way, we discover that there is no prophet we're speaking of. There's no there there because we're not God and we don't have the ability to control our lives. History continues to move endlessly onward and the achievements of each individual person can only appear trivial when considered in the long arc of history. And generation comes and generation goes and the new generation doesn't even remember what the former generation achieved. And so it's a hard pill for us to swallow. It's a shocking statement that he makes that life is futile. But he does it for a purpose. Because he wants to wake us up that there's a different way of living in this world. Behind this challenge is the question, given the context of your created nature by God, seeing that we live in a created world that was created by God. Why do you imagine that gaining a profit in the short span of your life is the purpose why God made you? Who told you that? What leads you to look for something more outside yourself than you already have to find happiness? Where does that message come from? You see, to chase the wind, he says, is to grasp hold of and to try and control something that is beyond our grasp and by its very nature is uncontrollable. And so from the beginning, we are destined to frustration and disappointment because somehow we believe the lie that we should have the strength, we should have the wisdom, we should have the power. If we just had a bigger bank account or we had more money or we had more friends or we had more popularity, then we'd be able to have the life that we really want. And no matter how hard we try to gain all those things, we end up disappointed and frustrated because we can't control them. And those aren't the things that lead to happiness to begin with. We begin to understand that seeking fulfillment through our own effort and our own toil is ultimately an exercise in futility, and it's not the way God ever intended it when he created you and he created me in love and to bear his image in the world. Everything that we do to get a leg up, to get ahead in the game, to buy us more time or to buy us more happiness, whether it be wealth or wisdom or power or pleasure, 
ultimately leads us dissatisfied and disappointed because none of it actually leads to fulfillment and joy in living. And so in chapter 2, in verse 20, he says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Have you ever felt that way in life? I began to despair of all the labor. I just keep working and I keep trying and I, I just keep feeling frustrated and it's not working. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave it all to, uh, to they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless. This too is futile and a great misfortune. You see, above everything else, Kohelet leads us to understand that the inescapability of our own mortality and our own death at the end of life mocks any attempt that we have to seek God-likeness in our own lives. Death brings the wise person and the fool to the same end, and it renders futile a life devoted to the accumulation of wisdom or of wealth or of power or of pleasure for their own sake, because the end is the same. Death is the great equalizer, and it's the ultimate statement on the true limitations of our own human power and our lack of control of life under the sun. It's therefore, he says, madness and folly. It's insanity to think that we can expect any different result. And yet the teacher tells us over and over and over again as we go back and we read through chapter after chapter, this is the trap that we all fall into. This is the temptation that began with the serpent in the garden that we can be like God. So what advice is there? How does one find the good life? The Hebrew word for good is tov. And in Genesis, when God created the world, he said that it was tov. And at the end of all his creating, he said it was very tov. And in the same way that the teacher uses the word hevel or futility to talk about what the unsuccessful life is like, he begins to say that there is a way to find the tov life, the good life. In verse 24, he says, a person can do nothing better. Actually, it says, a person can do nothing more tov than to eat and drink and find satisfaction, to find tov in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him or the person who toves him, gives, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who toves God. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. You see, the good life he's trying to help us to begin to see, the tove life that God desires for us, for the created mortal human beings that we are, consists in discovering good and the joy in the daily routines of life in eating and in drinking and in all of our labor to find the good that God has for us in it because God is with us in it. 
And so once we have unmasked the lie, once we've torn the veil away from the illusion of our own godlikeness, we can perhaps begin to see with new eyes, the teacher hopes, that there's another way of being in this world. Once we begin to accept that all the toil and effort of living life in this world was never meant to be a means to an end of our own personal profit and gain, we begin to see that the, the way of being in this world sees life itself as a gift from God. The fact that you're alive, the fact that you're here, the fact that we are together is the gift and God's here with us. What more do we need to be happy? And so we begin to see that life is not something that can be taken or manufactured or controlled or manipulated, but it can only be received as a gift from God. In this way, we said that Ecclesiastes begins for us to foreshadow the good news message of Jesus Christ. Because not only is the gift of life in existence a gift from God, but in Jesus, the gift of new life, of redeemed life, of saving grace through him, means that through the forgiveness of sin and through reconciliation with God, it becomes possible for us to discover what life was meant to be when God created us to begin with. The good life is a gift, and it can only be received. Wasn't this the perspective that Jesus tried to share with his disciples all those years ago? You'll remember the words in Luke 12, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And yet we do. Don't we? Don't we worry about everything? <laughs> You see, Ecclesiastes is intended to help us to begin to understand that once we begin to see the nature and the purpose of being created by God for purpose and on purpose, we begin to see more clearly that we can accept that God is in control, so we don't have to be. We can begin to trust him with our lives because we know that he's a, a tov God who's created a tov world and wants to give us a tov life if we understand how he wants to lead us into that life that he's promised us. But we have to cease our striving. We have to learn to find genuine enjoyment in the gift of life itself. And so when we begin to fully place our lives in God's hands and to accept the mercy and the grace that comes through his son Jesus, trusting in his goodness and in his grace to be sufficient to meet all of our needs, we can then begin to live our lives in the healthy rhythms of God's perfect timing for each one of us. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he goes into that wonderfully poetic uh, um, 
passage where he says there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. And those times are in God's hands. They're not in our own. We can't control the times and the seasons of our lives any more than we can control anything else, but we know that God can. In fact, he says it's for all those who refuse to accept this reality that the world becomes a place of futility and frustration and emptiness because they keep thinking that they're going to get a different result. But no gain can be made from it as a result of our striving and our struggling with life in pursuit of our own interests. Therefore, so much of life in this world that may seem like futility doesn't mean that fulfillment still can't be found. But it leads us to a choice that we have to make. It leads us to two paths that we need to choose. We can choose to go God's way or we can choose to go our way. There's a choice about which version of reality we're going to choose to believe and embrace that will lead us on the path that we will follow. And it's a choice that has consequences for our living today. As I was working on the series in the fall, I came across a book that where the, the title captured me because I thought it was a, a perfect summary of what I was beginning to understand was the message of Ecclesiastes for us. And it's written by an author named Shauna Nyquist. And the title of her book is Present Over Perfect. Present Over Perfect. Leaving Behind Frantic for a Simpler, More Soulful Way of Living. And I haven't gotten through the whole book, but I began reading, and it's a powerful story of her own transformation of life, realizing that exactly as Ecclesiastes is telling us, that she couldn't manufacture the life she wanted. She couldn't, through her own wisdom and own strength, find the happiness that she so desired. And so I want to encourage you, if you're looking for a practical way to apply the lessons of Ecclesiastes in your life, maybe consider reading present over perfect in this season between now and Easter. There's 42 chapters, and each chapter is just a little, you know, three or four page chapter. So they're bite-sized chunks. If you did one a day, seven days a week, it would take you six weeks. If you did two a day, which you could probably do pretty easily, it'd take you three weeks. You can do it individually. You can grab a friend. You can do it together and discuss what you're learning. But I encourage all of us to consider maybe reading something that would allow us to take these lessons of Ecclesiastes and really bring it home for our own personal lives in this modern world. Just real quickly, and we'll get more as we go along, but on page 15 and early in the book, she says, One Saturday, three years ago, I stared at the ceiling of a hotel room in Dallas, exhausted. I said to myself, if anyone else wants to live this life I've created for myself, they're more than welcome to try. But I'm done. I need a new life. I was 36 years old. I became aware that I was missing the very things I so badly longed for. Connection, meaning, peace. But there was something that kept driving me forward, a set of beliefs and instincts that kept me pushing, 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 even as I was longing to rest. Does that resonate with you at all? Do you ever feel like there's something that just pushes you to keep striving for more all the while you know somewhere deep in your heart that it's not going to produce any different results? 
Well, I want to invite you to join us in this series in Ecclesiastes where the teacher tells us that it's best to give up any attempt to control our destiny and to begin to simply live life as a gift from God. That the only rational response to the reality of life in this world is one of reverence and honor for God, issuing unto a life centered on God, putting our trust in Him that sees all of life in every relationship as a gift from God. So that each moment of life that we have, and none of us knows how long it's going to be, we can receive with joy and the power of God's presence. You see, our response to his grace and his blessing in our lives should be to seize the time that we have, to live it well, and to live it joyfully, and to give God thanks and praise and glory for his amazing gift to us. Amen? Let's pray. God, as we enter back into Ecclesiastes, I am challenged, but I'm excited because I know that, God, you have more good stuff for us. This ancient book has deep relevance for the modern world that we live in, and as we seek to understand how to find meaning and purpose, not only in our individual lives, but as a church, God, we ask that you would continue to challenge us through the words of this powerful book that that challenges the illusions and the lies that go all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve and the lie of Satan that somehow we should be able to be the gods of our own lives. God, forgive us for the ways that we have bought into the lie and that we have pursued our own personal gain and help us to understand the free gift that you offer us through the mercy and grace of Christ to just enjoy life as a free gift from you. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray.